I want to lay out a situation that I'm sure many of us have experienced before. You're at home, taking a break from work, maybe watching a movie or a TV show, or playing a video game. The scene starts and a hacker character comes on, and he's trying to find someone online, only for them to be hiding in the dark web. Or maybe they're talking about the bad guy that they need to hunt down who's selling weapons on the dark net. Have you ever stopped for a second and asked yourself, okay, but like, what is the dark web? For most people, I think they think it's this big, scary, impenetrable place that only the most elite hackers can get into. Well, it's not some unknown and mystical area that you need to pass a test to get into, and it's not just some deus ex hackina that scriptwriters can use to hide their bad guys. My name is John Cordes, and today, I want to guide you down below the surface of your normal internet browsing habits. We're going to dive deep down into the waters of the web, and we're going to come prepared so that I can shine a bit of a light on what the shell is in the shadows of the dark net. Before we get into the episode, I do want to remind you that last episode, I had that sticker giveaway. So at the end of this episode, I'm going to be announcing the three different winners of Who Got Sticker Packs. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so let's get started. Given that the news oftentimes will exaggerate the dark web and movies just make up their own rules as they see fit, I thought it would be important to start the episode with a little bit of a breakdown as to what it is. Let's start by talking about the internet as you, the audience, likely know it. We're going to break it down into three key components, the surface web, the deep web, and the dark web. Now, I know we're talking about webs here, but I'd like for you to think of this more as an ocean than a web. That's the metaphor we're going with for this episode, so get on my boat, pop on a life jacket, and let's get in. The area of the internet that a lot of people use every day is often referred to as the surface web. This area of a web doesn't really require any special credentials or privileges to access. You can think of it as the surface of a water. This part of the internet is the part that gets indexed and archived by search engines like Google and Bing. You ever wonder how they get their search results? Well, all these different platforms have bots just combing the internet, logging, and adding everything they find to their list. They'll get everything that they see that doesn't need any kind of special credentials to get into, report back, and then they'll add it to the list. For our little metaphor here, you could think of them as a cartographer with a real good pair of binoculars, constantly searching the surface of the water and mapping it out for anyone to use. Like I said, any site that doesn't require authentication is under this umbrella. So you'd consider maybe YouTube, three news websites, Reddit, and sites like that all parts of a surface web. What if we wanted to go a little bit deeper? Well, if you wanted to put on your own swim gear and go snorkeling, you'd land on the next level down, the deep web. The deep web is what's beyond any kind of authentication. You might not have thought so given the ominous tone of the term deep web and the fact that it's often kind of used interchangeably by the public for dark web, but we all use the deep web quite a bit. This part of the internet is the part that's just below the surface, that search engines can't index as a part of their operations. It's what's beyond the login portals and the privileged access of those areas. Here, you're going to find many things that you use daily, like private social media, email clients, bank and health records, and anything that falls under a pay-for-service model. A good example of this might be a news website. The front end of it is facing the surface web. You can go to that site, see what they've got, but some of it is going to fall into the deep web, and that's where they'll put their paywalled articles, the stuff you have to log in and pay for monthly. The deep web is the majority of interaction on the internet these days, I'd wager, as most things we do while logged into our own accounts aren't indexed by Google. 
It's how private chat areas exist, like Discord. You won't find What the Shell or School of Movies Discord messages indexed on Google. You've got to log in, join Varum, and participate. You can't just search for it. So now, with that in mind, we've covered what most people in their day-to-day -day lives use, the surface web and the deep web. That leaves just one area left, the depths below where you're able to swim, where light can't even make it through the water. This is the darknet. The darknet is, in and of itself, a subset of a deep web. That's to say that it's under the banner of things that are not indexed by search sites, but there's more to it than that. Not only are we not indexed, meaning you can't access it without knowing exactly where you're going, access to the darknet is encrypted, and you'll find you need to use special tools to access the sites. This means that not only is it going to be hard to find the sites, but when you do end up visiting them, your privacy is much more protected than it would be. Okay, but if you're protected, that's all well and good, but I can practically hear you asking me right now, John, that's neat, but how do I get access to it? How do I get protected by it? Let's talk about it. Well, if you think about the concept of an encrypted, unindexed network, you might realize that theoretically, it could be more than one thing. Like, there's not a monopoly on making a dark net. There is, however, a behemoth. The biggest name in the dark net that is thrown out there is usually Tor. That's T-O-R, the onion router. You may have heard the term Tor before, and this is what it's referring to. It works like this. Using an entry point, such as the Tor browser itself, you can get access to the dark web. The traffic that's passed through here maintains its privacy and security by bouncing itself through what are called volunteer nodes. Then, after a few times of bouncing around different nodes, it will hit the exit node, and then access the site that you're looking for. It's really just passing your traffic around to the point where it becomes insanely difficult to trace it back to the originating source. And now you might be thinking to yourself, what kind of nefarious group would think up such a convoluted idea? Who would do such a thing and just release it onto the world? Well, would you be shocked if I told you it started with the U.S. government? More specifically, the U.S. Naval Research Lab? Back in the 1990s, one particular group of individuals noticed that there was a distinct lack of security on the internet, and it would soon, if it hadn't already, be a tool for surveillance and tracking. And man, did they not realize how right they were. Michael Reed, Paul Siverson, and David Goldschlag all wanted to work to make an internet connection that wouldn't reveal who was talking to whom. With this concept in mind, they thought up the idea of onion routing. If you were to route through multiple servers and encrypt it on each stop of a way, then each pass-through adds another layer of security. And as with almost all metaphors involving layers, they made it about onions. In the early 2000s, another person joined in, Nick Mathewson. And that's when it really started to come to fruition because that's when the first iteration was publicly deployed. At its start, it had just about a dozen volunteer nodes passing traffic, but today, that number is in the thousands. And volunteer is a theme here too, because Tor isn't some group that hides in the shadows. You can actually go look at our website today and read about everything that I'm telling you. They operate in a manner that many different hackers, coders, and people on the internet like to operate on, which is open source ideals. They want true privacy for you, and they let you in on it. So when they did release it, they published the code for the project so that you could opt in to help. You know, become a volunteer node. Let me take a minute to read to you their mission statement. It goes, quote, to advance human rights and freedoms by creating and deploying a free and open source anonymity and privacy technology, supporting their unrestricted availability and use, 
and furthering their scientific and popular understanding. That's all to say that they want to make sure everyone has the inalienable right to be private on the internet, that no government and no entity can take this from them, and that if you want to, you will have the ability to use it and understand it. This hit such a strong note that the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF, would begin helping them fund the organization, and eventually it would grow into a full-fledged nonprofit called the Tor Project. So this has been going on for, what, 20 years now at this point? And there is still this misconception that you need to be a hacker mastermind to be able to get into the darknet. And that's because initially it was kind of hard. In the early days, you would need to set up a special proxy tool to make your way in and start browsing. But nowadays, it's as simple as downloading the browser from our website. And again, it's not some fancy tool. It's built off the back of Firefox. And if you're expecting anything other than an internet browser, you're going to be let down. I have a screenshot of it on the website in the transcript of the episode at whattheshellpod.com. So feel free to take a look if you don't want to Google it or go to the website. The Tor browser offers you a way to browse the surface web and the dark web all from one place. It comes with its own manual, and you can even get a nice little newsletter to keep you up to date on what's happening. It's pretty neat, and I can't stress this enough, it is perfectly legal for you to download this. You won't get in trouble just because you have the browser on your machine. Just don't use the browser to look at anything illegal that might trace its way back to you, and it's exactly like any other browser except a bit more focused on blocking tracking data. So speaking of legal and illegal, I think it's time we stop talking about how you get to it and start talking about what exactly there is on the darknet. Once you're in on the Tor browser, what now? Well, let's talk about some of the safe and perfectly legal places to go. One of the most common places is called the Hidden Wiki. Yeah, the dark web isn't indexed on Google or anything like that, but that's not really stopping users from aggregating their own data as they acquire it and putting it somewhere. And getting to the site is the first little challenge because it's not like you're looking for hiddenwiki.com or anything like that. The dark web URL is a nearly 60 character long string of seemingly random numbers and letters, dot onion. The site is indexing as much as they can find on the dark web, including social media pages and journalism sites. Yeah, that's right. You can go onto the dark web and use social media or read news articles or look at someone's blog. And what I'm about to say might surprise you, but did you know that Facebook and the BBC have dark web sites? For the Facebook dark web mirror, the reasoning is pretty simple. Someone might want to try and create an account privately without any traces back to where they are or who they are. Or, and this one is pretty common, maybe you want to use the tool to avoid censorship. I'm not talking about the kind of censorship that Facebook takes down your post because you did something that was kind of obscene. I'm talking that there are many countries in the world that impose their own restrictions on content on social media, and by using Facebook on the dark web, you could theoretically get around the firewall that your country has in place. The dark web mirror of BBC hits the same point. Operating its news network on the dark web means that if you know how, you can get their news anywhere in the world without fear of censorship because of government restrictions. This is the kind of thing that I like to see personally, that you're getting unfettered access to things that there's no restrictions being put in place on you, and it's allowing you to really know the truth. That's not to say that there isn't other things on there that I'm fairly neutral on, like there are dark web equivalents of Reddit or Quora, and dark web tools for things like file sharing, stuff that I really don't use but I conceive a value in, I guess. But there's also stuff that gives the dark web its reputation, the illegal side of things. 
And I do want to go back and stop here because I want to talk about Hidden Wiki one more time. Since this is the dark web and they want to archive what they can and find links for things, Hidden Wiki also has the links to a lot of downright horrendous things on it. I'm telling you right now, it's probably not worth it to go there and start clicking around on anything that you don't know because it just isn't worth a risk of stumbling into something that will leave a lasting impact on you. These kind of sites do exist. And let's keep going with this a little bit. Let's dive into the part of a dark web that grants it the reputation of being the kind of place you might find the internet equivalent of Han Solo. There are parts of a dark web that are invitation only. Parts that people don't want to give out the information to so they can keep it as private as possible. Parts that publicly boast about what they put up there, and parts that exist purely to trade or sell illicit goods. These kind of sites are where the public gets its idea that the dark web is for a level of person that doesn't care about the law. To talk about some of the things that you can buy on the dark web, I'm going to refer to a privacy affairs annual report that publishes an average price index of the things that you can buy on the dark web. These are all things obtained by threat actors, hackers, or anyone looking to make an anonymous buck. So let's dive into the market. If we look at credit cards, for 120 US dollars, I could get credit card details with an account balance of up to $5,000. $65 gets you the logins for some bank accounts with a minimum of $2,000 in the account. $15 for the credit card details with the CVV number included. If you wanted a specific country, you could pay $30 for an Australian card or $17 for a US card. I do wonder what the difference is there. Maybe it's the number of cards diluting the price a little bit. But remember this, because it's entirely possible that if you get breached and your information gets sold, your value was placed as low as $17 and as high as $120. For all the trouble that you're dealing with, this is the value that your information can effectively be sold for. And it's sold for this low because usually this information comes in troves of data from breaches. So this number, multiplied potentially by thousands and thousands of people, means a big payout for someone else. But maybe you don't want to get involved in credit card data exactly. Maybe you just want money to appear. You could potentially pay $50 for someone to transfer money from a stolen PayPal or Western Union account. If you wanted to invest in crypto, yeah, you can buy compromised accounts with money in there or buy a verified account that wouldn't tie back to you for less than $500. This is a big thing these days because while most people think crypto is something that is truly anonymous, if you participate in one of the major exchanges, nowadays they require you to submit proof of identification and stuff that will tie back to you so that if they find anything illegal, they can trace it to you a lot easier. Crypto is not the anonymous plaything that people think it is. And now I'm gonna talk a little bit about one that I'm sure anyone with social media has dealt with in the past. Hacked accounts. How many times have you had a friend that just suddenly starts posting nonsensical pictures of some miracle before and after weight loss thing? Or a used watch sale over and over, maybe even tagging you non-stop in it? Heck, it's happening to someone that I used to know on one of the social media pages I use right now. The last few weeks, he's been posting nonsense, and I suspect it's because he hasn't used his account in quite a while. So someone might have found credentials online, realized that they worked, and sold them. And now a scam artist is using it to try to get people to click on the link in the scam. And that link could be malware or it could just be an attempt at stealing money away from anyone that will check it out and believe the weight loss story. But as for me, I just blocked them. I could buy a hacked Facebook account online for less than $50. 
if I was to suddenly start streaming on Twitch and wanted to boost myself up a little bit, I could buy 1,000 followers for just $4. $4. Picture that. So for $40, I could buy 10,000 followers. You could buy SoundCloud plays if you were an aspiring musician, and Instagram followers, or Spotify listens. Anything could be added as a service here. But there is a drawback to that, and the reason that it's so cheap is because those kind of bot activity farms or social media abuse sites are fairly easily identified. So the actual site that you're using, let's run with Twitch for example, might just start deleting these accounts, and your follower account will go right down. And it also doesn't guarantee that people are going to be watching. Personally, you're better off spending that money actually promoting your site. Now let's cross the line a little bit further and go into even more illegal stuff that you could buy. If you are willing to settle for scans and not the actual thing, you could buy forged utility bills or driver's licenses. A couple interesting scans that I see you can buy include things like a New York or Minnesota driver's license, or even as far out as a Russian passport scan. And those ones, the scanned versions, they're all less than $2,000. The actual printed copies, well, you're looking at anywhere from $150 to $4,000, depending on where it's from and how legitimate you want it to look. And the last part that I'll cover here about what you can buy is going to tie back a little bit more into the theme of the show. Let's talk about the malware and cybercrime. Say I was jealous of a competitor's website and I wanted to, maybe not navigate people to me, but navigate people away from them. I could, for $500, hire a cyber criminal that operates on the principle of cybercrime as a service, often referred to as CSAS, to flood their website with between 10,000 and 50,000 requests per second for a week. If I wanted to go for a month, it would only be $850. And this kind of attack honestly is probably better suited towards attacking small businesses that can't afford the kind of protection that would mitigate this stuff, but it's still crazy to think about. 10,000 to 50,000 per second for days or weeks at a time. Remember in episode 23, when I talked about distributed denial of service attacks and people using botnets to use them? This is that kind of thing. You could buy out one of those tools and put a damper on your competition with a slow website or even making it inaccessible. Or, heck, you could even just do it to someone you don't like. Remember that analogy of trying to give a speech in an auditorium? Well, what if it was a full-on stadium that was full and Everyone was shouting at you. Not a fun time at all. This is an insane amount. In terms of cyber exploits, there's no shortage of different malware and espionage for sale. We've talked about ransomware as a service before, and this is definitely where you'd find it. Just last year, the US sanctioned a dark website named The Hydra Market that specialized in those kind of deals. It operated as a cybercrime sales broker and cryptocurrency exchanger for threat actors from around the world. It's like the worst version of Craigslist you can imagine. And Hydra isn't the only place you can buy those services either. There are a myriad of dark websites offering more than just DDoS attacks. Now I'm going to take you back all the way to the start of our own timeline, back to episode one. Remember the Colonial Pipeline hack? If you don't, go back and take a listen. And in advance, I apologize for a poor audio quality. The high level is that a tool called Darkside Ransomware took down the pipeline and caused an uproar across the country. The custom ransomware was bought on the dark web for just $1,262. US So based on what we've talked about so far, I want to put you in the shoes of a hacker with a little bit of money to spend. 
you're of a cyber menace here, and you've got maybe $3,000 in Bitcoin, let's say. If you wanted to try to turn a profit based on what we've talked about so far, you could buy a crypto account with no ties to you, buy valid credentials to somewhere, and buy custom ransomware with enough money for you left over to go crack a cold beer and wait for your profits to start coming in. And this is not me saying, hey buddy, let's go do crime. It's me showing you how shockingly easy it is to just buy these services. That's not to say that it's guaranteed that you're going to get what you pay for. For starters, these are criminals, after all. But on the flip side, all they do have is their reputation, so if they want to keep doing this, they need to supply things that work. And on the other hand, the private sector is constantly getting more and more technology to help mitigate against this stuff, so you are taking a risk if this is something that you engage in. But ransomware and DDoS are relatively low-level things. There's even bigger stuff to come from the dark web sales. Now I want to take a look at a site called The Empire Market. Empire Market is a pretty interesting case here because if you were to just glance at the website, it would look like any other shopping website you use. And again, I've got screenshots for you to look at on my website and social media, so go take a look. If you look at a screenshot of the site that I have, you start to see filters on the left that you can filter by product. You can say counterfeit, drugs, gadgets, or other. And earlier in 2022, if you looked in that other section, you'd see different zero-day exploits for sale. Remember, zero-day exploits aren't known to the vendor until they're reported, so these are big. Let's take a look at the three that you can see. For $1,200, you could get a Facebook zero-day that claims to let you take over an account except a verified one, and that it will bypass two-factor authentication. For almost $3,000, you could get a voting machine exploit that lets you swing votes in your favor if you have access to the machine. A little bit harder because of how it needs to be delivered, but still a major impact. And think about the timetable. This is early 2022, before elections. So that was likely a guaranteed interest for someone. Lastly, there was a Gmail zero day that promised a full account takeover with the use of a burner email account. And beneath each of these, I'm not trying to make light of this, but it is kind of funny because there's a customer review section, a rating scale of five stars. Honestly, this website that I'm looking at has better UIs than some of the online stores that I've actually used. If I wanted to, I could click contact seller and see what they have that might not be on the website. It goes back to that last episode about bug bounty hunting when I said that crime does pay a little bit. The biggest competition for bug bounty hunters can often be the unethical bug bounty hunters that post to these websites and take the anonymous payday. And again from last episode, do you remember how I said that Apple will pay out big for some of its zero days? Well, the last exploit that I'm going to bring up here is one from August of 2022 that allowed attackers to hit the webkit in iOS 15.6.1 and this is pretty rare, what I'm about to talk about, but there are actual screenshots of a user on the dark web forum selling this for 2.5 million euros. Yeah, so it is kind of hard to compete with that level of cash, and the post in and of itself actually touts that it's fine to develop these exploits and sell them to governments for surveillance. So we know there isn't much of a hang-up on how it's used ethically. They just want to make an insane payday. That's all to say that the dark web is the biggest cybercrime market to ever exist. In fact, did you know that if the dark web cybercrime was treated as its own economy on par with other countries, it would be the third 
largest in the world. According to Graphis, the number is about $6 trillion annually, placing it behind the US and China. It's no small thing, and it's growing. We do have a history of taking down some of the sites that tend to appear on the dark web, and that will leave ripples. You might have heard of the Silk Road before, but if not, the long story short of it is that it was the premier dark web drug trading site. You could buy cocaine, steroids, crystal meth, and even something called Devil's Breath. That last one, Devil's Breath, it's something I hadn't heard of before, but according to websites that I found, it could be called the world's scariest drug. According to Complex, it allegedly, quote, put users in a hallucinogenic state, but the scary part is that users lose their free will, in that while they're under the influence, they'll do nearly anything that they are told. So yeah, kind of scary stuff for sale here. But the site was seized and shut down. It lasted a few years, but in October of 2013, the FBI, in cooperation with Europool, shut down Silk Road and arrested the site owner, Ross Ulbricht. Now, there's no giveaway here, but I do want to ask you, how long do you think it took for the next iteration of that site to pop up? The answer was less than a month. Less than a month later, some of the former admins basically relaunched Silk Road as Silk Road 2.0, but that too ended up getting shut down. Ultimately, it seemed like a really bad game of whack-a-mole. It's insanely hard to find and attribute darknet sites to actionable seizures and arrests. Many times, when these things do happen and they do get searched and seized, it's not necessarily because they found out information on the dark web, but because the owner or someone involved slipped up in their day-to-day -day life and somehow left a little nugget of a trail back to the site. Or maybe they flipped when they got caught by investigators and then they led everyone to the site itself. There is one other part of a dark web that I didn't bring up here and that's got more to do with sex trafficking and exploitation of minors. The reason I'm not bringing it up this episode is because I'm going to tell you it's there. It happens, and it's terrible. But frankly, I don't think it belongs here as a part of this episode. If I ever do it, it will be a hard episode to write, and it will deserve to be told as its own story, with better coverage than as a footnote to this whole episode. There are deplorable people out there making a profit on the exploitation of others against their will. And I can't begin to describe how that makes me feel even in this small section. Instead, I would like to offer you the opportunity to listen to someone else that does a good job with it. There is an episode of Darknet Diaries called Welcome to Video. And it details an investigation into one of these sites. The whole process of how a major series of investigations of cryptocurrency transfers led to a waterfall of arrests relating to child pornography. From federal agents, to school principals, and South Korean citizens, the story is insane. And I don't want to say anything else beyond that, but if you're willing to stomach it, that episode is absolutely worth the listen, and it does the topic the attention it deserves. So I'm going to recommend you go and take a look at that. But at this point down the rabbit hole, I think I'm ready to call the episode. I think that's it. What I wanted to do with this one was shine a bit of a light on the actual topic of a dark web. I wanted you to know that it's not always some scary place, and it's not some monster that has no face. It doesn't take an evil genius to use, which is both a bit freeing to know and scary at the same time. But ultimately, it's there, and these things are happening on it beneath the surface of what we do every day. I'm not going to sit here and say that you'd be wrong to be a bit afraid of it, but now I hope you at least understand it. I'm John Cordes, and thanks for coming on this dive into the bottom of the ocean that is the web. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening.
But before we go, I did promise at the start of this episode and last episode that there would be a giveaway. If you remember, I said that if you reached out to me on social media or in the Discord with your guess as to when the first modern bug bounty occurred and got either of the first or second major incident years right, I'd enter you into a giveaway for a sticker pack. You're going to get two of each kind of sticker here, so six stickers total. Well, I decided that instead of one winner, why not give people a little bit of a better chance? I'm about to draw for three giveaways. First, I'll draw from the people that got it right, and when that's done, I'm going to draw again twice for everyone but the first two winners. This way, one person doesn't take it all. I had such a great turnout from all of you on this that I felt bad doing just one giveaway, so I picked up a few extra stickers and let's get into it. I'm happy to share that our winner from a group that got it right is from our Discord channel, and it's Adam VV. The second winner is coming from Twitter, and that's Mighty Greg Doge. The third winner is back to our Discord again, and it's Bearded Shrimp. So, Adam VV, Mighty Greg, and Bearded Shrimp, you guys are all going to get sticker packs, and I'll reach out to you separately for sending this stuff out, but congratulations! And I do want to thank everyone that participated in this. It was really fun for me to see people come into the Discord and start guessing, or hit me up on Twitter and Instagram with their attempts at getting it right. A lot of people were really close. One person was really far off with a guess of like 1915, but I appreciate it. And if you're here sitting at the end of the episode wondering what this was all about or you're new to the show and you might not know this, you can join us in the Discord to talk about the show and hang out. In fact, on February 18th, some of us are going to be getting together and just hanging out in Discord for the night. So I encourage you, come on in and join. Hang out. Just talk with us. You can go there and reach out to me or anyone else online or offer suggestions that you might have for the show because I genuinely would love to hear them. You can find the link to join on my website at whattheshellpod.com or in the description below. And if you do go to that site, you'll find a transcript for the episode. And should you be interested, you'd find my other social medias as well, but they're pretty easy. You just have to search for at shell underscore pod. And then, as always, I do want to ask that if you liked this episode, maybe leave a review or a rating on your platform of choice. It does go a little bit of a ways in terms of getting me up there in the charts so other people can find the show. If that's not really your thing, maybe just recommend your favorite episode to someone that you think might like it. Word of mouth is my favorite, and I repeat, my favorite way that the show has spread. When people come to me and say, hey, someone recommended this to me and I really like it, it's probably one of the best joys I've felt. All right, that's it. I'm done. So I'll see you all later for the next episode of What the Shell.